Good morning to all of you. I've chosen to uh, preach this morning from this inspiring passage here in Matthew chapter 11, and uh, especially be looking in the, the verses of 28, 29, and 30. Um, I think uh, this verse, uh, these set of verses has been something that I've been drawn to a few times in the last year or two, and um, I find it very, um, like I called it, inspiring. I credit my good friend Daniel Brenneman for uh, some of the thoughts and the concepts that I'll be sharing here today. I have an object lesson that uh, I want to uh, try to utilize. I have not very often spoken publicly and used an object lesson, um, so I'll try to do the best I can. I will need the help of a six, seven, or eight-year-old boy. So if you're six, seven, or eight, uh, when I ask you at some point here and a little later on, I would appreciate if uh, someone would get up and the first person up here is uh, the one who gets to, uh, to help out. <clears throat> the context here in Matthew chapter 11 and 12 has to do with expectations. The expectations of what people had about Jesus. And I think it applies hugely to expectations in general. Expectations for our lives. And how we process things that are different or unlike what we expected. So in chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison. And he is Jesus' cousin. He is about a year older than Jesus, and uh, he spoke out in truth to Herod and is now imprisoned as a result of that. And he, in prison, he hears these things about Jesus' ministry, and Jesus is doing things and involved in things that John, for whatever reason, had not expected. So in addition to the unexpected turn of John's life, he is probably in his low 30s, in addition to those expectations not turning out the way he wanted, there are other expectations in connection with his ministry. And his ministry was to be the forerunner for Jesus. And so now Jesus is is doing things, and word comes back to John in prison that um, are unlike what John expected Jesus to be doing. And right now I'm having some uh, changes in my expectations. <laughs> In chapter 12 of Matthew, we see the Pharisees and the Jewish people in general, I think, um, struggling with their expectations for a Messiah. They, were, they wanted, they longed for 
a Messiah, a deliverer. But Jesus was not what they expected. And so they're dealing with those expectations that had not materialized. In the middle of these two accounts, we find these verses about Jesus' yoke and our burdens and how those two intersect. In verses 25 to 27 of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is teaching that there's actually kind of no middle ground with him. Everything that has been the Father's is entrusted to him. It's another way of saying that he is God's son. All the power that is God the Father's is shared unilaterally with God the Son, Jesus. And Jesus claims that power, and he says that it is, it is his power, and he says that all power, all things, he says in verse 27, are delivered unto me of my Father. Almost sounds like the Great Commission. The things that Jesus says here are clear indicators to the listeners that he is God's son. He is not a fraud. He is not a pathological liar. He is not empowered by a demon. He is the son of God. And what he's teaching comes from God's heart. Jesus is also present here today. Not because he lives in this building, but because he lives in our hearts. He lives in the hearts of Christians. And when you walked into this place today, you brought Jesus with you. And I think that message is the same to us today. The message here in verses 28, 29, and 30 are the same message that applied thousands of years ago. And I think the invitation is the same today as it was back then. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There are five things that I see here in this passage. Five things that I want to point out here in the sermon. The first one is something to do. And that is, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come unto me, he says. Something to do. In John chapter 7, Jesus uses this same type of invitation where he says, Let him come unto me. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And he that believeth on me out of... As the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Mark 10, verse 21. To the rich young ruler, Jesus said, Sell that thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. 
In Matthew 25, the parable that there Jesus says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. And that rings, that invitation rings all the way to the end of the Bible. In Revelation 22, verse 17, The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. That's the invitation of, throughout the entire Bible, not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. It's been said that the entire Christian walk can be summarized in three simple commands of Jesus. And these commands are, come to me, follow me, and abide in me. And I think that's sort of well said. Jesus didn't say, come to church and you'll find rest. He didn't say, join some self-help program and you'll find rest. He said, come to me and you'll find rest. All of you, come to me. He didn't say, some of you. He said, all ye, all ye that labor, come to me. That's the invitation for every single one of us. That invitation is for you. Every one of us, you and you, wherever you are, come to Jesus. In Acts chapter 16, a jailer asked Paul, saying, What must I do to be saved? He said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In other words, come to Jesus. That's how we become saved. Paul told him to come to Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to be saved, we need to come to Jesus. If you ask a Muslim what he needs to do in order to get to paradise, he may quote the five pillars of the um, Muslim faith, which includes praying five times a day and fasting one month out of every year and such things. If you ask a Jew what he must do to be saved, and he would maybe give you a relatively long list of things that you should do or don't do, if you ask a Hindu what he must do in order to be saved or to be reincarnated into a higher existence, the Hindu may say that there are certain offerings that you need to bring to your God or to a multitude of gods, lots of different gods, and how it needs to be done at least three times a day and so on. But for a Christian, there's not really anything to do except come to Jesus Salvation isn't a program, you see. It's not a performance. Salvation is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And we come to him and find rest for our souls. Jesus said, come to me. That's the invitation for every single one of us. For wherever we find ourselves in our lives. Come to Jesus. What does coming to Jesus mean? Well, I think one of the things it means, according to this passage here, is that when we look at the missed expectations of John the Baptist or the failed expectations of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of, of that time, in verses 21, 22, and 23, Jesus has some very direct words for these people who were struggling with their failed expectations. And the the 
The basis in a nutshell of what he says is that look at the wonderful works. Look at what Jesus has done. Look at what Jesus is doing in your midst. And that's, that's I think, key for all of us. He does not condemn John the Baptist for his doubt. He does not condemn the Pharisees necessarily other than he straightens out their, or tells them how they should think. But he says, come to me, believe who I claim to be. Look at the works and what I'm able to do through the work, the power of God in me. Come to me, all ye who are weary. This passage is sometimes called the world's great invitation. Jesus says, come to me. Well, we can have, multi- we can have all the different responses that there are. We can ignore it. We can walk away from this invitation. And many people do. Or we can say, maybe. We can say, later. Or we can say, yes, Lord, like the Bible invites us to do. I'll I'll come to you. That's the right response. God, Jesus is not going to drag us into a relationship with him. It comes out of a heart of willingness and a desire to follow him and to see what he brings us. Jesus is a gentleman. He does not force us to follow him. He simply offers the invitation and he will walk with us. And my advice to you is the same as it was to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Accept his call to be saved. If you're today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've never made the conscious decision to follow him, there's time for you to do that. You should do that today, the Bible tells us. If you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Follow Jesus. That's the call out the scripture. Come to him. The second thing we see here is that there's something to leave. And we're invited to leave our burdens. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I especially am challenged and find it interesting to notice how that this is in the present, the, the English here is what is called the present participle. That means it is current and ongoing. Come to me, you who are weary, are weary and heavy laden. Not who were, but who are. That's exactly what Jesus offers to do. There's no need for us to unburden ourselves There's no need for us to clean up ourselves in order to come to Jesus. There's no need for us to make ourselves presentable for this meeting with Jesus. He will do it for us. And the very fact that we are burdened, the very fact that we have burdens, that we are weary, qualifies us to be in Jesus' presence according to this promise and this, this call. The very burden itself is what qualifies you to come. No payment required, he says. I will give you rest. The rest that he promises, the relief from the burdens, 
The, the promise to carry our burdens for us, to make our burdens light, is free. It's not something that we, it's not a transaction. It's not something that we need to buy or pay for. It's a gift. Jesus' rest is free. The promise is just as clear as could be. I will give you rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, we live in a world where people are so busy. I am busy. I am one of them. All of us tend to be so busy that we cause a lot of stress for ourselves. And I've already noticed that when you go to other countries, for example, on some of my visits to other countries, I've often been impressed or amazed at the load that people carry physically. We don't do that so much here in the, in the United States. We have technology and gizmos and whatever else, widgets that do the work for us. But in some of these other countries, it's fabulous the amount of things that they physically carry, hundreds of pounds on their bicycles, or on, perhaps on their head or on their back, or that sort of thing. And, yeah, I've noticed that when I've traveled in other countries. Loads that are so large that we would use a pickup truck to carry the same load. But then I come to America, and I see people who are maybe not carrying heavy loads physically, but heavy loads emotionally. And that's a whole other kind of load. The call for us is to leave those burdens. Bring those burdens to Jesus. And he will never say no, as the song says. Come, bring your burdens. Jesus will never say no. The third thing we see here is that there's something to take. And that is the yoke of Jesus. He says, take my yoke upon you. Now here's where our illustration comes in. Here's where the demonstration comes into effect. I had a little bit of a light bulb moment some time ago when I heard this, term, or this, uh, this word expounded on. And it led me on a little bit of a journey to rethink what I think or how I think about this word yoke. Take my yoke. The yoke of Jesus. Now this word in the Greek always means two. It carries the idea of two, not just one. And the word yoke has the idea of coupling two together. Of, yeah, coupling two things of something together. Now one of the first things that we think about, especially in our... Um, understanding of uh, animals and so on. When we think of yoke, we think of a yoke of oxen, where two oxen are coupled together with a perhaps a wooden or a metal yoke, where the two oxen are pulling a load or doing something of that nature. That qualifies. I think that is a picture that would would qualify for the definition of the word yoke. It means that there's two of something and they're connected together. The yoke was a wooden harness that joined two animals together. In the Bible times, it was something that was probably familiar to them. 
And even up until the middle of the 20th century here in America, there were farmers who pulled oxen or some two animals together. It's still common today in rural areas of the world, China and other countries, you see oxen yoked together. But as I studied this passage the last several weeks, I came across an idea that was completely new to me. I had never thought of it before. In the Strong's Concordance, the definition, as I gave it, is a coupling, connecting two of something together. And it could easily mean a wooden beam that connects two animals together. But Strong's goes on to say that means, it could mean a balance. The beam of a scale is the definition. I like that, and I want to illustrate that today. The beam of a scale, like a balance, a coupling, putting two things together. Now's the time for a volunteer who is willing to come forward. If you're a young guy, six or seven, maybe eight, stand up and uh, it'll just take a minute or two. Where are you? Maybe you dads have to get involved. Somebody want to come help? All right, I wasn't really anticipating this. <laughs> uh, let's see, what should we do here? There we go, all right, awesome. You're a brave guy. So what I want you to do is to uh, Take this bucket, carry the bucket, and place it over here beside the, it might be better if you walk down here, and then walk across the front of the church and put the bucket there beside that tripod. See if you can do that. It might be best if you, it's a little clumsy, right? Can you do it? Ah, that's a strong guy. You're doing good. Yeah. Let's put it up here. How about we put it right here? All right. Now I want you to just stay here for just a little bit, and we're going to put this on, on this beam, on this scale here. So that was pretty heavy, wasn't it? It's mostly clumsy, right? All right, so now we have them on the scale. Okay, pretty much balanced there, right? If I can keep this thing stable. All right, now what I'd like for you to do is get your little finger. Just hold your hand like this and see if you can lift that bucket with your little finger. It's easy, right? 
Not bad. Thank you for coming up here. All right, that's an idea of coupling. That was a heavy load for a young guy to carry that bucket over there. But when it's on the scale, he could easily lift it with his little finger. What was the difference? What well, was counterbalanced, you see? And that's, that makes the difference. That's what changes it. And I think that's the spiritual lesson for us today. To come under the yoke of Jesus. And this metaphor, and this object lesson, it's Jesus that makes this burden light. It's Jesus. It's the opposite, the counterbalance. Jesus gives the wisdom and the power. The bucket weighs the same. It's the same amount of weight. It's the same clumsy, the same everything. But when it's counterbalanced with the weight on the other side, It makes it light enough that he could very easily, Desmond, I think is his name, could very easily carry, lift it with his little finger. It's the load on the other end. It's the power on the other end of the scale that produces the, the ability for him to do that. So there's something to take. Take the yoke of Jesus. And then there's something to find. He says, you're going to find rest for your souls. Jesus didn't promise to give you rest for your body, although that may be the case. He isn't talking about sitting down and becoming lazy and fat because you don't do anything. You're still burdened. What you're facing still is the same. You face the same challenge. You face the same weight, the same clumsy. Everything is still the same, but when it's coupled with Christ, it becomes very bearable. It becomes light. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And ye shall find rest for your souls. I think one of the words that describes our culture is restless. Restless. And the word for rest that's used here is the same word that's used, or that's the same root word that's used for Sabbath, where it means that we rest from our labors. Where the implication is that we no longer are weary. We're no longer heavy laden. We still have burdens, but we're no longer weary. I especially want to call attention to the word you. I will give you rest. Ye shall find rest unto your souls. Take my yoke upon you. I will give you rest. You see that word three or four times here in this little passage. The gift is personal. Jesus wants to do this for all of us. He wants us to bring our burden. And he will make that burden bearable. The word for rest, like I said, is the same word as the word Sabbath. And that word is also used to describe Jesus' finished work on the cross in the Bible. It's the same idea that's tied to that. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it's finished, it's done. There's the, the rest that he provided, it was done. There was nothing left to do. He had done what he came to do. 
Someone has said that there's two ways to spell salvation. One is the word do. It's possible to look at salvation like that, as something to do. Or, as someone more correctly said, that the other way to spell salvation is the word done. D-O-N-E. And we work from what has been done, not from what we do. My body gets tired. Physically, I need rest. But my soul finds rest in the cross. And regardless of what I'm facing physically, regardless of what I'm facing from the things that come outside of me, there is a possibility for me to find rest in Jesus in those times. It's not that my burden goes away. It's not that my burden becomes something completely, um, it goes to nothing. It might even be the same kind of clumsy, but it's light when it's in the balance with Jesus and the yoke with him. There was recently a star athlete, a celebrity, who very publicly made some huge mistakes. And I found it interesting that when he acknowledged his mistakes or he confessed publicly, he said that it's important for him to turn to his mother's Buddhist roots to find rest. And he went on to say that he has a lot to atone for. And that word especially stood out to me. He said that he has a lot to atone for. That's the exact word he used, atone. When I heard him say, or I saw that he said that, I thought to myself, I'm thankful that I don't have to atone for my sins. Jesus did that for me. Jesus does that for us. And I can rest on what was done. I can rest on, on his finished work on the cross, not on, not on the things that I do. Buddhism is a religion of works. But unlike Jesus, Buddha is dead. Jesus, on the other hand, is alive. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says that it's through the blood of the cross, the finished work of Calvary, Jesus make, made atonement for our sins. And because of that, we can find rest for our souls. The fifth thing that I see here is that there's something to learn. <clears throat> Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. So we take our yoke, and while we're in cupping with Jesus, there's a transfer of power. There's a transfer of knowledge, a transfer of, of experience, a transfer of all that we need is learned from Jesus. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, he says. While we're in this yoke, while we're in this coupling, we learn from Jesus. You know, sometimes life is full of challenges, and sometimes it's hard to move forward when you feel like you're pulling a heavy load, pain and trouble that comes along. And I think this idea of learning carries the idea of a process that happens over a period of time. And I think it's easy for us to be down on ourselves when something doesn't happen quickly. It's that way for me, at least. And here he talks about learning. Learning is something that's done over a period of time. It's done by repetition, over and over and over again. Learn of me. What are the things that we need to learn from Jesus? Well, we need to learn about his plan and purpose. We need to learn about his love. 
We need to learn about his power that's available for us. We need to learn about relationships and how he relates to people. We need to learn about sacrifice and love and forgiveness and many other things that come along in our lives. We need to learn from Jesus. When we're in this yoke with him, that power is transferred. The ability to learn is not, not, not only the ability to learn, but the facts that Jesus wants to give us become accessible to us. Get in a yoke with Jesus is the invitation. Take my yoke. Learn from me. And he goes on to say how that he says, I am meek and lowly in heart. Meek and lowly in heart. When I think of that I think there's different angles that we can explore as we look at that. Well, you could first of all say that he's the strong one, I'm the weak one. That's correct. That's actually a very correct statement. He is the song that we sang here in um, our little singing time. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Um, I, little ones to him belong. They are weak, or in other words, we are weak, but he is strong. That recognition that he is the strong one, we're the weak one. He is meek and lowly. He is the strong one, but he gives that power to us. And it's the same lesson that we need to learn as we relate to others. Meek and lowly in heart. That's the thing that God wants to learn. It seems like it's in the, correct, in the direct connection. Take my yoke and learn of me, for, he says, he continues that word for as a continuation word. I am meek and lowly. And as we learn from him, as we become meek and lowly in our hearts, we find rest in our souls. In 2 Corinthians, Paul gives a personal testimony about his weakness being made strong, becoming strong in weakness. And I think that's a fascinating account there, where Paul came to him and asked God to take away this thing that he perceived to be weakness. And God's response was, it's that weakness that makes you strong. I was impacted by a book called Leading with a Limp. It's a book for leaders and for anyone who wants to read it by Dan Allender. And I remember especially being greatly challenged by that book and how that the weak things in our lives are designed, given to us by God to make us strong as a sign of his strength, his strength working through us. We are weak, but he is strong. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, the words to Paul were, his power is made perfect in weakness, in our weakness. In other words, as long as we struggle alone, we're not able to carry that weakness. We're not able to make sense of the problem. But when we give it to Jesus, it becomes a light and easy load. I love the joke, probably not a true story, about a man who went to buy a chainsaw at a local hardware store 
after having used hand saws and cross-cut saws for many years. And he took the saw home, and in a short time, he gave up. And he set the saw aside, and he went back to his hand saws because he was frustrated. He said the saw wasn't a bit faster than in his previous saws. What so happened that the dealer lived close by to this man, and he stopped by the man's house later on, and he stopped to see how he liked his new saw and how it was working for him. Oh, the man said, I can't cut wood any faster with that saw than I could with my cross-cut saw. So the dealer was kind of curious, and he stepped over to the saw and examined it and pulled the starter cord, and the saw roared to life, and the man jumped back, and he said, What's that noise? Here he had been trying to cut the wood in a similar fashion to his hand saws. He just needed to release the power of that saw. And that's often, we're just like that. The power of God needs to be released in our lives. And the burdens that we carry, the wood that we have to cut, stays the same in diameter, in hardness, and in thickness. But we can carry that load because of the power that's at work when we're in the yoke with Jesus. Some of you may be thinking and saying, but pastor, a burden is still a burden. And that's right. You're right as you say that. All of us have things that we're called to carry, sort of like Paul. Weaknesses that we wish would be taken away from us. But I think the call to Paul is the same as the call to us. His weakness or our weakness makes God's strength perfect. When we're in the yoke with him, that weakness, he bears the heaviness. He bears the clumsiness. Sort of like a bird. Birds are weighted just right with the amount of feathers and body mass. If the bird becomes skinny for whatever reason, it can't fly as well. If you cut the feathers off of a bird, it can't fly. It needs that weight in order to fly. And maybe in the same way, some of the weight that we have, some of the weaknesses that we wish were gone, are actually what gives us the ability to fly. The yoke of Christ is not a burden. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. As I close now, I draw the attention to the words of a songwriter named Don Moen. And he captures these concepts so beautifully in his words. It's a song that we're sort of familiar with. <clears throat> he giveth more grace. When the burdens grow greater, he sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied sorrows, his multiplied grace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance,
When our strength has failed, our day is half done. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. If you're able, I invite you to a kneel prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We ask your continual blessing and guidance on us as we go through our lives. We thank you for your power and how you've revealed yourself to us in so many ways. And we thank you that you are God and that you are our creator. You understand all things about us. And I pray that you would help us to utilize that strength by giving ourselves to you, by coming to you, by taking that yoke and allowing you, your strength, to exceed, to override, to carry our weakness. We want to give you the liberty to do that. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to, to come into that tandem, to come into that yoke with you and receive you in a way that you can do that. Deliver us from things that would keep us from that. And Father, we just again thank you for your power and how you work in our lives. We come to you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.